Good morning, welcome again. We are at 1 Samuel chapter 3. If you're using one of our blue Bibles, I think it's page 227 toward the beginning of the Bible. Please keep your Bibles open as we go through it together. 1 Samuel chapter 3. Now the boy Samuel was ministering to the Lord in the presence of Eli. And the word of the Lord was rare in those days. There was no frequent vision. At that time, Eli, whose eyesight had begun to grow dim so that he could not see, was lying down in his own place. The lamp of God had not yet gone out, and Samuel was lying down in the temple of the Lord, where the ark of God was. Then the Lord called Samuel, and he said, Here I am, and ran to Eli and said, Here I am, for you called me. But he said, I did not call. Lie down again. So he went and lay down. And the Lord called again, Samuel. And Samuel arose and went to Eli and said, Here I am, for you called me. But he said, I did not call my son. Lie down again. Now Samuel did not yet know the Lord, and the word of the Lord had not yet been revealed to him. And the Lord called Samuel again the third time. And he arose and went to Eli and said, Here I am, for you called me. Then Eli perceived that the Lord was calling the boy. Therefore Eli said to Samuel, Go, lie down, and if he calls you, you shall say, Speak, Lord. For your servant hears. So Samuel went and lay down in his place. And the Lord came and stood, calling as at other times, Samuel, Samuel. And Samuel said, Speak, for your servant hears. Then the Lord said to Samuel, Behold, I am about to do a thing in Israel at which the two ears of everyone who hears it will tingle. On that day I will fulfill against Eli all that I have spoken concerning his house from beginning to end. I declared to him that I am about to punish his house forever for the iniquity that he knew because his sons were blaspheming God and he did not restrain them. Therefore I swear to the house of Eli that the iniquity of Eli's house shall not be atoned for by sacrifice or offering forever. Samuel lay until morning. Then he opened the doors of the house of the Lord. And Samuel was afraid to tell the vision to Eli. But Eli called Samuel and said, Samuel, my son, And he said, Here I am. And Eli said, What was it that he told you? Do not hide it from me. May God do so to you and more also if you hide anything from me of all that he told you. So Samuel told him everything and hid nothing from him. And he said, It's the Lord. Let him do what seems good to him. And Samuel grew and the Lord was with him and let none of his words fall to the ground. And all Israel from Dan to Beersheba knew that Samuel was established as a prophet of the Lord. And the Lord appeared again at Shiloh, for the Lord revealed himself to Samuel at Shiloh by the word of the Lord. And the word of Samuel came to all Israel. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for speaking to us in your word yet again. Help us to listen. Help us to take what you are saying and apply it to our hearts. Help us to believe it. Help us to know that you are true, even if everyone else was a liar. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Completely out of the blue this week, I heard from an old friend I hadn't heard from in a really long time. It was great to talk to him. It was a total surprise. wasn't expecting it. Our passage this morning is about God speaking out of the blue to his people after a very long time of being silent not talking to them. We've been saying over the last couple weeks 
that the book of Samuel follows right on the heels of the book of Judges. During the period of the Judges, you see God withdrawing more and more from his people as they keep refusing over and over and over again, keep refusing to listen to his wise guidance. They keep refusing to thank him for his generous mercy. He keeps saving them from all their problems, but they don't thank him. And so you see, by the end of the book of Judges, God is taking much more of a passive role. He's kind of disappearing from that book as, a, as an actual character by the time you get to the end of it. His silence, his withdrawal from the people, his silence is really a terrible form of his judgment on Israel. And to make it worse, God's people there at the end of the book of Judges don't really seem to care that much. The book of Judges reminds us, as you get to the end of the book, you start hearing over and over again, that there's no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Tolu told us last week that part of that is alluding to the fact that God's really the king of Israel. And so that when it says there's no king in Israel, that's a very loaded term. It's saying that God, for all intents and purposes, uh, is not functioning as the king anymore. The people have rejected him. They're doing whatever's right in their own eyes. They're just listening to their own hearts. They're no longer listening to God. Tolu showed us last week that the priestly sons of Eli were worthless men because they didn't know the Lord. Their willful ignorance of God, their willful ignorance of his word had led them into deep hypocrisy. They were robbing the poor. They were abusing their power. They were living for their own pleasure. They probably had lots of good intentions. They were probably were saying many of the right things. And so we get an introduction to what this terrible situation has led to in verses 1 to 3. We see the word fading. The word fading. Look at verse 1. The boy Samuel was ministering to the Lord in the presence of Eli, and the word of the Lord was rare in those days. There was no frequent vision. We're seeing through these first few chapters of Samuel the unexpected rise of this boy Samuel from the outside. He's rising to the top as God's priest, as God's prophet, and that's being placed against the backdrop of the unexpected fall of Eli and his family. They're on the inside. They have this privileged position of status and responsibility as the main priests there at the tabernacle, which is this special tent that God had required Israel to use to worship him and to bring sacrifices to cover over their sins and to show their gratitude for his kindness. Last week we saw how the priests were failing in many of their duties, one of which was to teach the people God's word. But you also see here that God has pretty much stopped giving new messages to his people. The corruption of the priesthood is simultaneously a cause and a symptom of God's silence. Their corruption is a cause and a symptom of God's silence. Uh, this word that we have here, rare, the word of the Lord was rare in those days. In Hebrew, it mainly and often means precious. It's used to describe uh, precious metals, precious gems, something that's very valuable because it's so hard to find. God's word is precious in these days. It's precious because we cannot and we should not take it for granted. God is not obligated to talk to us. God is not obligated to tell us how we can know him, how we can get back to him, how we can be reconciled to him. He really doesn't owe us anything. At this point in Israel's history, God's word has become even more precious, even more rare 
because he's not really speaking anymore. It's terrible when God stops speaking. The worst thing about COVID in the last year and a half has not been the suffering or the deaths, as terrible as those are, because all of us are going to suffer, all of us are going to die, many of us in much worse ways than COVID. The reason those are not the worst things, especially if you're a Christian, is because as Christians, neither suffering nor death necessarily harm your souls. But rather the worst thing about the last year and a half has been the silencing and the silence of churches. It's because the preaching and the hearing and the accepting of the good news of Jesus is absolutely necessary to escape eternal suffering and eternal death. The Word of God is absolutely essential, especially in the face of fear and of death. Suffering does not need to harm your soul. But the silence or the refusal of God's word definitely will. Remember what Jesus said when he's being tempted by the devil, turn these stones into bread? You're very hungry. He's fasting for a long time. Jesus quotes the book of Deuteronomy. He says, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Referring specifically to the written words of the book of Deuteronomy. Nobody thought for a second in the last couple years that we should close grocery stores. Everyone knew that we needed food. How many people were quick to think we don't really need church? We don't really need the word. Jesus says, man shall not live by bread alone. It's a terrible thing when God goes silent. It's a terrible thing when we don't listen. What a terrible judgment the last year and a half has been on our world. What a terrible judgment from God on a church and on a nation that was already largely disinterested in God's word. God has withdrawn in a sense. But here at the end of the period of the judges, God's not really speaking anymore. There's something much worse going on here in Judges. But in verses 2 to 3, we still have some glimmers of grace. We hear that Eli's eyesight is nearly gone. Next chapter, we're going to hear that he's totally blind. But here, it's that he's mostly blind. It's probably an allusion to his spiritual and his moral decline. He can't see much of what's going on with what matters to God. We heard that there's no frequent vision during this time. The Bible often ties seeing with hearing. Uh, Oftentimes in the Old Testament, especially, the prophets are called seers. Seers. They have visions because the idea is that the prophet is one who stands before God. There's a sense in which the prophet is seeing God in order to hear from him and to bring his word into the world. Uh, In some ways, you could say the same thing about the sacraments. Uh, We just saw Elias being baptized. We're going to partake of the Lord's Supper pretty soon. When you see the physical elements of the sacraments, whether it's the water or the bread or the wine, you are, in a real sense, seeing God's word. You are seeing God's promises. God is speaking to you in a physical thing. You're seeing what he says. Eli has just about lost his sight. But continuing on with this vision and this light theme, you also hear in verse 3 that the lamp of God has not yet gone out and that Samuel was lying down in the temple of the Lord where the ark of God was. Again, this is a glimmer of God's grace, a glimmer that God has not given up on Israel, on his promises to them. The tabernacle, the big tent, and then later the temple, the big building, uh, they had a couple of symbolic pieces of furniture in them. One of them was this lamp that the priests were supposed to light every evening and keep it burning all night long, reminding us that God is there with his people, even in the darkness, in all of his purity and his holiness and his glory. 
And so here, part of what's going on is a reminder that even in this terrible period of the judges, that God is still graciously present with his people. The lamp of God has not gone out in spite of all their sin. We also hear that Samuel is sleeping nearby the ark, which is really an old word for a chest, a box. Uh, This was a gold-plated box at the very center of the temple and the tabernacle. It contained, among a couple of other things, uh, the two copies of the Ten Commandments that Moses brought down from Mount Sinai. This box at the very center of the building was where once a year the high priest would go in and he would sprinkle animal blood on top of it to symbolically cleanse and cover over the sins of God's people lest God consume them in his holy judgment. And so even here, little Samuel, this boy Samuel, sleeping next to the ark with the lamp still burning, even here you have a reminder that God is graciously present with his sinful, ungrateful people. Even with his holiness, that's what the lamp is pointing us to, we have a reminder that he's present in and through his word, the tablets that are inside the box there, But we also have a reminder that God does not give us the judgment that we deserve for disobeying his word because of the atoning sacrificial blood on top of the word, on the top part of the box. God remains persistently and patiently present with his wayward people, even as we're hearing that his word has been fading. And yet now in verses 4 to 14 we see that his word returns. The word has been fading. It's a terrible situation. But now the word returns. In verses 4 to 9, you have this famous story about God calling Samuel in the night three times. Each time Samuel goes to Eli until he finally realizes that it must be the Lord. And he tells Samuel, say, Speak, Lord, for your servant hears. Now a fourth time, the Lord calls him again. And so after so long without speaking... How patient and how persistent the Lord is. He doesn't say to Samuel and Eli, well, I tried once, Uh, too bad for you, Uh, you're a bunch of bozos, don't you know who I am, I'm not going to try again. He keeps trying over and over and over again. He's persistent until Samuel responds. He's graciously revealing himself. He's revealing his merciful plan to bring about his kingdom on earth through his chosen king. That's the whole point of the book of Samuel. It's the whole point of this story. It's not really about... Uh, how God speaks to cute little innocent children. It's not a story about how to discover God's will for your life. It's a story about how God's getting ready to bring his king to the earth. In verse 11, the Lord speaks to Samuel. He says, I'm about to do a thing in Israel at which the two ears of everyone who hears it will tingle. Literally, it says, I am about to do a word. I'm about to do a word. God's word is active because unlike us, God always does exactly what he says he's going to do. And also, unlike us, God's word is itself creative and powerful. God's speech is his action. God's action is his speech. When he says at the beginning of the book of Genesis, let there be light, we simply hear And there was light. That is radically different from the relationship between our own words, our own thoughts, and the reality outside of us. Whatever God says, whatever God thinks, happens. His word is powerful. And so God says that he's about to do something in Israel that's going to make everybody's ears ring. Uh, That's what this word tingle means. It's like when you hear a really loud noise and your ears start ringing. He says that this message to Samuel 
that he's announcing to him is going to be like a bomb blowing up in the midst of Israel, exploding the corrupt and the hypocritical status quo. In verse 12, he tells us what this bomb's going to be. It's reiterating what we heard about last week from the nameless man of God who came to announce to Eli that God was going to completely overturn his and his family's privileged position, their role as priests. Now we hear it again, straight from God. God says, I'll fulfill against Eli all that I have spoken concerning his house. I'm about to punish his house forever. This word punish is the same word as judge. Uh, It says God is going to judge his house forever. For centuries, in the book of Judges, we hear about how God's been raising up judges to rescue his people, to fight against their enemies. But now, shockingly, horrifyingly, we hear that God's going to be the judge and that he's turning against his own priests. Why? He says it's because Eli's sons have been blaspheming God. Uh, It's a word that means something like belittle, uh, saying that something is contemptible, saying that something doesn't matter, uh, treating it like it's insignificant. Like lots of people today, including lots of people who claim to be Christians, uh, even if these priests were going through the right motions, even if they could have rattled off many of the right answers, their hearts were actually very far from God. Their behavior showed that they just didn't care that much about him, that he was small in their minds. He was tiny in their hearts. They considered him to be beneath them. They considered God to be little and weak, even though they never would have said this. They were denying God's transcendence by trying to wrestle him down to our level, by treating him like he's just another thing, just another object to be manipulated and bribed and ignored whenever we feel like it. For his part, Eli refused to stop them. He refused to exercise what we would now call church discipline, probably because he didn't want to cause problems, he didn't want to upset anybody, It would have brought a lot of shame on his family. He would have lost a lot of income. He just wanted to be nice. He just wanted to be gracious, quote-unquote gracious maybe. But by doing this, God now says to him through Samuel, you're belittling me. You're blaspheming me by refusing to do this. And so God says, I'm coming in judgment. God's clearing the deck of corruption and hypocrisy as he raises up his chosen king to rule over his people. It's right and it's good for God to respond to sin with wrath. Because sin is not only destructive to our relationships with each other and to this world, but also, most especially, because sin is destructive to our relationship to God, the source, the epitome of all truth and all goodness and all beauty. Eli and his sons are so far gone in sin that God says the sacrifices and the offerings there at the tabernacle are going to accomplish nothing for them. Much like we were just saying about baptism, in the Old Testament, the sacrifices, the animal sacrifices, the little food sacrifices they would bring, nowhere in the Old Testament does God promise that these sacrifices are going to deal with defiant, persistent sin, even symbolically. Because living in that way shows that our hearts are opposed to God. Sacrifices were always meant to be the grateful, outward expression of a heart that's been sobered and encouraged by the mercy of God. 
And so nowhere in the Old Testament does God make any provision for any kind of atonement, any kind of forgiveness for repeated, persistent sin. And so we see that the word has returned, but it's a word of sober judgment. After so much silence from God, I'm sure everybody was hoping that his first word back would be something a lot more positive. And yet this is what God in all of his goodness knows that his people and his kingdom and this world needs. And so now as the word has faded, now the word has returned, albeit painfully, we see Samuel speaking the word. That's the last part of the passage. Samuel speaking the word. He struggles to pass on the message faithfully. He gets up in the morning to do his usual work. He opens up the doors of the tabernacle. Again, another glimmer of grace that God is open for business. He's here to meet his people. He's here to forgive them. Uh, But in verse 15, we hear that he's afraid to tell the vision to Eli. He doesn't want to speak God's word of judgment because he knows how painful and how unwelcome it's going to be. Modern people are not the only ones who struggle with the idea of God's wrath. All through the Old Testament, you see over and over again God's chosen prophets in total agony, wrestling with this inescapable call to announce God's judgment on a world that's rejecting Him. And yet they, back then, and we now, need to listen to God's Word. All of it. They and we need to speak God's word, all of it, no matter how painful or offensive. Jesus was not crucified because he was such a nice guy or because he fixed so many problems. The Gospel of Matthew tells us that in his public ministry, the very first word out of his mouth was the same as the first word out of John the Baptist's mouth. Repent. 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 The kingdom of God is coming. Turn around from your sin, change your life, get right with God. Something new is coming. Jesus' ministry was a ministry of proclaiming repentance. Samuel seems to be avoiding having to tell what God has said, but Eli knows that it was the Lord. And so he demands a full account. He says, don't withhold anything from me. He says the same thing that you should say anytime you're hiring a new pastor, new elders, anytime you go to a new church. Don't hide anything from me. Tell me everything that God says. For all of his faults, at least Eli knows that he needs to hear all of God's word. And Samuel now faithfully, although with trembling, passes it on with no sugarcoating. It says that Samuel told him everything. He hid nothing from him. Eli responds with the recognition that God is sovereign, that he and his family deserve the judgment that Samuel's just heard about. He says, it's the Lord. Let him do what seems good to him. I'm not quite sure what to think about this. Perhaps this is something still good about Eli. Maybe it shows us that here's a man for all his problems still submitting to God's word, even though it's incredibly painful. That would be a positive way to read this. Or maybe and or, It's something else. Maybe it's meant to show us how far Eli is from understanding God's grace, understanding God's character, because he doesn't plead for the Lord's mercy. Remember the story of Jonah? Uh, Later on in the Old Testament, God calls the prophet Jonah. He says, go to Nineveh, a a notoriously terrible, unjust city, 
He says, all God tells Jonah is he says, go announce that judgment's coming. Remember what Jonah does? That's all God says to say. Jonah runs the other way because Jonah knows that the Lord is a gracious God. Jonah knows that God's threat of judgment always carries with it the merciful offer of forgiveness toward the humble and repentant. And you see that amusingly later in the story. Jonah finally goes. All he says is that in 40 days, judgment's coming. And then immediately the Ninevites, the wicked Ninevites, they repent and they turn away. And then Jonah gets really mad about it. He's mad that they're forgiven because they're so terrible. But in any case, whatever's going on here with Eli, we hear in verse 19 that Samuel is now established as the Lord's prophet. From Dan to Beersheba, that means from north to south, the whole land knows that this is the Lord's prophet. Even as we've also been hearing lots of ways, especially last week, that Samuel's functioning as the Lord's priest. In a lot of ways, Samuel is a priest and a prophet for God. It says that the Lord was with him and let none of his words fall to the ground. It means that God ensured that everything that he spoke on God's behalf came true. The entire people know that he's God's messenger, so much so that we hear that the word of Samuel coming to Israel is the same thing at the end of chapter 3 as saying that the Lord revealed himself to Samuel by the word of the Lord. Samuel's word has become the Lord's word. God is graciously revealing himself to his people again. He's broken his silence. He's preparing a sinful, wayward people for the coming of his mighty and gracious king. Now, what does that all mean for us? I've got a couple of main ways to apply this for us today. The first one is more personal and practical. Uh, Ask yourself this, is God's word precious to me? Am I willing, am I seeking to hear God's word? We're in a different situation now than the Israelites were back then because God has now spoken finally and fully to us in the Bible. The Bible does not speak about, it doesn't say everything about everything, but it does tell us everything that we need to know to find God's love and mercy. Uh, The Israelites under Samuel had not yet heard all the things that we've heard. With the coming of Jesus, with Jesus' equipping of his chosen apostles, God has now spoken to us everything that he has to say about how to know him until Jesus returns. And so for us today, at least in America, where we can very easily and quickly read the Bible, where we have never had so many resources available to us so easily and so cheaply about how to learn to read the Bible, about what the Bible means, uh, where we are living in a society with vastly more free time and leisure than almost anybody in history, where there are still many faithful churches proclaiming the gospel. In America today, God's silence is largely not because he's not speaking, not because he's not sending out Bibles, not because he's not raising up pastors, but largely God's silence is mainly because we're not listening. But another question is this. Am I willing not only to hear God's word, But am I also willing to apply it? Am I willing to speak it? Even the very painful parts, the parts that are painful to me, maybe to other people. If a doctor has some very bad news for a patient, we would consider him incompetent or even evil if he withheld the bad news just because he didn't want to upset them. The good news of the gospel, that God's merciful gift of eternal life has come to us in Jesus for anybody who trusts in him, that good news is good precisely because of the bad news behind it. 
that we deserve God's never-ending judgment for the ways that we've belittled God and His Word. And so are we willing to apply and to speak God's Word, all of God's Word? So that's the personal side, but more broadly, more theologically, we need to also see what this passage shows us about Jesus. Do we see and know today that Jesus is God's final prophet, that he is the true and better Samuel? He's God's final spokesman? Hebrews 1.1 tells us that long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, like Samuel. But in these last days, he's spoken to us by his son. There's a finality, there's a climax to the coming of Jesus. Jesus is the final, the greatest, the fullest, the clearest revelation of God. We don't need anything more than what he said to us. And he's ensured that his word, down now through 2,000 years and counting, he's ensured that his word has been passed down to us in a reliable form in the Old and the New Testaments of the Bible. But it's not just that Jesus speaks the word of God, even though he does that. It's also that Jesus is the word of God. Jesus is the word of God. John chapter 1 says that Jesus is God's word made flesh. And that he is also, John chapter 1, verse 18, he is the only God who's also always been at the Father's side and now as the only God is making the unseeable God known. He reveals God to us as God himself. Samuel, in many ways, was the first of the main prophets, the first of the seers, the first uh, pronouncing God's judgment. He functioned as a judge. He spoke of God as a judge. And in the Gospel of John, Jesus uses all these kind of same images and language for himself. He says that he's God's final prophet. He's final, the final judge. He's the final spokesman. In John chapter 5, Jesus says that he does only what he sees the Father doing. This imagery of the prophet as the seer. Jesus says that the Father has given all judgment to him. Jesus says that all those who accept his word escape God's judgment because Jesus' very word brings either eternal judgment or eternal life. Jesus also says there in John chapter 5 that he judges in perfect accord with what he hears from the Father. Not just what he sees, but also what he hears. And so just like Samuel's word became the Lord's word, so also Jesus says in a climactic way that if we refuse to accept his word, we're really refusing to accept God's word. In John chapter 15, his last night before his crucifixion, he's at a dinner with his disciples. He says that everything that he's heard, he's made known to his disciples. He didn't hide anything from them. In John chapter 16, he says that after he rises from the dead and ascends into heaven, he's going to send the Holy Spirit. The Spirit's going to continue Jesus' prophetic work of hearing God's word. The Spirit's going to hear, and the Spirit, Jesus promises, is going to make it known. In and through Jesus, God is speaking. In Jesus, God has graciously and finally broken his silence in a way that's far better, far clearer than what he did through Samuel. The good news of the death and the resurrection of Jesus, there we see, there we hear that the judgment that we deserve has fallen on him. No matter how hypocritical or selfish we've been, no matter how little, how much we've belittled God with our lives, and our actions. God has spoken in Jesus. Are we listening?
Let's pray. Father, help us to listen. Help us not only to hear the words coming across through the air, coming at us from the page, but help us to actually and truly listen to what you're saying in a way that changes us. Give us the humility that we need uh, to hear everything you're saying, as hard as it might be, as costly as it might be for us and for the things we've cherished, for the ideas that we like to hold about ourselves and our world and our country. Help us to listen to everything you're saying, Father, so that we might be truly changed, so that we might better represent Jesus as his body here on earth. We ask in his name. Amen.